Isn't God good? And he is so good. So good. And uh, it's so good to be here. If you have your Bibles, you can get those out and turn to Acts 15. Thank you, Adam, for leading us and and rest of the worship team that makes him look so good um, for leading us in worship. Um, Man, worship has just been wonderful. Worshiping through professing our faith, worship through pastoral prayer, worship through confessing our sin, worshiping through song. Man, is your heart ready for the word? All right, well, as you're turning there, I'm going to reorient you really quickly to what's happening uh, in the acts of the early church. So Paul and Barnabas have just finished up their first missionary journey. Carlton Brown showed us last week what that route looked like. And if you don't remember, basically leaving uh, Antioch, Syria, sailing west uh, toward the island of Cyprus, making their way through Cyprus, and then heading north to Paphos. From there, continuing to head north into uh, Antioch, Pisidia, different Antioch, then circling east uh, through a bunch of cities. Uh, that area is known as Galatia. That's important to remember, especially for our text today. And then arriving back around, basically a big circle, back around at Antioch, Syria. So they've arrived back from their missionary journey to their sending church. And they're sharing, the scripture says, all that God has done among them. And we see that the church is very encouraged. And so that gets us called up to where we're at in Acts 15. So let's jump in and read together. But some men came down from Judea... And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. 
After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this council of Jerusalem and its importance uh, and how you played everything out uh, just the way you wanted it to go. And so, God, we celebrate your sovereignty this morning uh, in this passage and in our lives right now in 2020. And we pray, God, that as we now seek to grasp an understanding of the significance of this passage, why we have this recorded, why it's your word to us. Uh, God, would you please illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit, transforming us into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, before, I know that's a long passage, 35 verses, uh, Took a little while to read, but before we dive in uh, to, the, to the meat of the message, I want to take time and frame up what we just read so that it makes the most sense, okay? So track with me so you're not like, well, where did we just go? Um, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has come. He preached the good news of the kingdom. He called people to repentance and faith in himself. He then suffered and died for sins that he didn't commit, but three days later, he rose victoriously and pronounced victory over death and also pronounced his authority on earth and in heaven. 
He then commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all peoples, just like he has done with them, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. So the disciples began doing this, and many Jews began trusting in their Messiah. Praise God. But also, many Gentiles began trusting in this Jewish Messiah. And this is where the problem happens. Now, it wasn't uncommon for a non-Jewish person to worship the Jewish God. Uh, We have many examples of that all throughout the Scripture. In fact, we've previously said in this book that in order to be a legitimate worshiper of God, uh, you needed to subscribe to the law of Moses and be circumcised. That was the old tradition. Therefore, when Gentiles began trusting in the Jewish Messiah, the Jews thought it to be a no-brainer that they must also subscribe to the law of Moses and be circumcised. Since this was common practice before the Messiah, it should be common practice after the Messiah. You with me? But what they missed was the very essence of the gospel message that Jesus preached. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, he came to fulfill the Mosaic law. He alone obeyed every part of it perfectly. He alone was able to bear the yoke that is mentioned in verse 10. He alone stands righteous. Therefore, the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus all become perfectly righteous before God. That's the good news. There's no more atoning for sins with the blood of bulls and goats because sin has been atoned for once and for all by the precious blood of Jesus offered up on a cross. That's the grace that verse 11 is talking about. And circumcision of the flesh is no longer necessary as a sign because in the new birth, Jesus has himself circumcised the heart of every person by faith in himself. That's what we see written in verse 9. But you have to understand, it's really hard for a Jew uh, to hear that people can be saved apart from the law. I mean, they've lived the last 1,400 years as a people under God's law. They believe that Coming to God meant coming underneath the weight of his law. So when they hear that Gentiles are being saved without bearing the weight of the law, they think to themselves, no, no, it's not legit. They are illegitimate. But I want you to listen to Paul's heart break for them in Romans 10. He says, for I bear them witness that they do have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Listen to this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what's happening in our text? Pharisaical Jews are saying that Gentiles cannot be saved apart from circumcision and the law, while Paul, Barnabas, and others are saying Jesus Christ has saved these people. He's done it. By his grace, 
through their faith in him. So what I want to do for today's message is us try and tune in to the issue at hand that we just went over and to better understand why this counsel is necessary. Like, I want us to think, is it just a hermeneutical or doctrinal issue that is causing problems? Like, is it just that these new Pharisee believers didn't completely understand uh, the implications of the gospel? Maybe the crossover time in salvation history was a little difficult to understand. I don't think that's the problem. Like, I don't think it's the main problem here. And I think if we just walk away from this text with the affirmation that you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we might miss a whole lot. Now, is salvation by grace through faith in Christ the central theme of this council? Yes, absolutely. But we want to dig into the question of why is that such an issue? Like, why is that doctrine causing so much problems? Why in the world will we see this issue come up again and again and again like it's a plague on Paul's ministry? Why will many leaders in the church nuance this line of thinking and bring it up again and again throughout church history? Why will this be the issue that causes the Great Reformation to happen 1,500 years from now? And why is this still an issue today? Answer? Because as fallen humans, we have a natural tendency to try and justify ourselves. We have a natural disposition to do what's right in our own eyes. And that's what I believe this text is all about. Man's continued attempt to reject God's salvation in order that we might save ourselves. So, I've entitled today's message, Fig Leaves, Skin Coats, and the Righteousness of Christ. Some of you may be thinking, what? What is that? But think back with me to Genesis 3, the fall of man. After Adam and Eve disobey God in chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So what we have is right here in the beginning of humanity, Adam and Eve realize something is not right. They're naked, and it's shameful. And this is really sad because at the, at the end of chapter 2, pre-sin, what do we read? Anybody remember that great passage? They were naked and felt no shame. But now we see at the marriage of sin and humanity, humanity feels shame. The next thing we see Adam and Eve do is uh, hide from the presence of God. So they've, they've tried to hide themselves and now they're hiding from the presence of God. Their newfound darkness causes them to think that avoiding the light is the best way to go. And we relate so well to this picture we see in Genesis 3, don't we? Can we be honest? 
Because nothing in all these centuries has ever changed. We are still trying to cover up our shame and hide from the presence of God. But before the Lord sends them out of Eden, in verse 25, we're told that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, hence skin coats, and he clothed them and sent them out. Now, this is the beginning of the sacrificial system that God would officially institute for his people Israel under the Mosaic law. This system was to provide atonement, a covering, or for forgiveness of sins committed. Jewish people relied on this sacrificial system in order to be right with God. But then, at just the right time in history, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world makes his entrance. The Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He provides cleansing of sin and an imputation of his righteousness to all who would believe. So what I've tried to quickly lay before you is three camps of people that we are shown in the Scriptures who all deal differently with sin. Camp number one covers themselves and hides. Camp number two relies on religious systems and principles. And camp number three receives the righteousness of Christ. Now, I want to show you these three camps right here in our text. Paul, Barnabas, and Peter are preaching what? Receive the righteousness of Christ. They have been preaching this good news on their missionary journeys. And who are they preaching it to? The first camp of people who what? Cover themselves and hide from God, better known as pagans or Gentiles. Now, when this first camp begins receiving this message, uh, the right, receive the righteousness of Christ, our second camp becomes really bothered. And they begin interjecting, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you can't just receive the righteousness of Christ. You also need to submit to God's religious systems and principles in order to be saved. So do you see it? The Council of Jerusalem is all about fig leaves, skin coats, and the righteousness of Christ. Now, why do I take so much time to frame it up this way? Well, I think it's important for us to see and understand that these three groups of people have been around since the beginning of time and will continue to be around until the end of time. Even now, Christians, we find ourselves constantly gravitating toward fig leaves or skin coats, don't we? And consequentially, what happens there is we abandon the righteousness of Christ. This is because our hearts have a natural inclination toward relying on what we can do rather than resting in what God has done. So my hope this morning is that we would see all the many ways that our hearts are given to these false hopes. For we we, Grace Fellowship, are personally in need of a council of Jerusalem again and again and again. Amen? So let's examine this fig leaf group that has been receiving the gospel and thus upsetting our skin coat Pharisees. 
So we mentioned a few weeks ago how diverse the church at Antioch was. Remember that message? Some of you are trying to forget it. We can now imagine, as Paul and Barnabas have completed their first missionary journey, how diverse the believers and the local churches were. So the church at Antioch was diverse, but then these guys just went on a missionary journey setting up diverse churches everywhere, scattered out throughout Galatia. Former idol worshipers, possibly witches and sorcerers, poor, rich, sick, nobility, slaves, Jews, Greeks, on and on. These people come from all different backgrounds, have all different kind of worldviews, but are now receiving the righteousness of Christ and being adopted into God's family as they hear and believe the good news. That's wonderful. But now that they had believed the gospel and been saved by Christ's righteousness, how would they distinguish themselves from the rest of the world? Like if God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ saved them, it's hard to imagine that this would give them any immediate external distinguishing marks of being different, right? Well, let's move a little deeper into the life of a fig leafer. You know, fig leafers know that something is wrong in them just as much as Adam and Eve knew it in the garden. But they don't really know what it is or how to fix it. But that doesn't stop them from trying. Uh, They build idols. They pray prayers to the God of the sun or the rain or the moon. They hope their good deeds will rise above their bad deeds. Some of them even reject the notion of God altogether and embrace this wrong feeling and just call it right. Like We're familiar with that, right, in 2020? And you may find this surprising, but at a heart level, everyone in the fig leaf camp is really a legalist. That's what they are. Meaning... They know that something is wrong, and they're trying to fix it. For some people, that might mean doing away with the notion of God. Why? Because if there is no God, I don't have to be in subjection to him. What are they trying to do there? Find their way legally out of this thing. Still a legalist, though. Now, we know that none of these maneuvers or plans that the fig leafers come up with will ever work. You cannot escape God, and you cannot appease him by your works. You must follow his prescriptions found in his word. So the second camp would say all of your uninformed, misguided, and foolish attempts to make things right will all fall short. God has given us a way to follow. His word is clear. They would say things like, in order to be right with God, you need to be circumcised. Love God with all your heart. Obey the Ten Commandments. Read your Bible. Pray. Go to church and give. But I want you to tune in to what these two camps are actually saying. Do you hear it? It's the same thing. (laughs) Both of them are saying, 
You need to do fill in the blank to be right with God. They're both saying the exact same thing. Both camps are actually legalists. The only difference between fig leafers and skin coats is that one is informed by God. But both are still placing their hope in themselves. That's the key here. And fig leaves might be easier to recognize than skin coats, but both give themselves away with their obsession for the external appearance. While those in fig leaves won't subscribe to the same ideology that skin coats do, both will have explanations why X is greater than Y. And both will tell you that the reason they believe X is greater than Y is what makes them righteous. Are you seeing the danger here? Like when we become consumed with external appearances, with religious institutions and principles, we become much like those wearing fig leaves by overvaluing the external above the internal. Just think for a moment. If someone asked you to describe a Christian, how would you do that? Like, would you spend a considerable amount of time talking about things you can't see, like Peter does in our text? Would you talk about the grace of God given to them, verse 11? The cleansing of their hearts by faith, verse 9? How they've been given God's Holy Spirit, verse 8? Or would your description of a Christian have more to do with things external? Well, Christians go to church, Christians read their Bibles. Christians obey the scriptures on and on. It's important that we ponder that. I mean, even as I write these things, I'm personally convicted about how I would describe a Christian. Last semester, <laughs> probably after this message, you're going to get told to not tell about my bad grades in seminary, but you just got to be transparent. Last semester, as I wrote a paper on discipleship for seminary, I got all kinds of bad marks, and rightly so. The reason I got all kinds of bad marks is because I was placing so much emphasis on the external behavior of a person, making it seem as if behavior modification is the primary goal in discipleship. Church, it's not. The primary goal in the gospel and in discipleship is a love for God. A changed heart that trusts Jesus. Changed affections that desire Christ. Which will then lead to a changed mind that thinks differently. And yes, all that ultimately will play out in the behavior. But any discipleship or gospel that begins with behavior or has an overemphasis on behavior, is an unhelpful, is very unhelpful in gospel growth. But I tell you this to say that it's easy for us who receive the righteousness of Christ to fall back into the skin coat camp. That's literally what we have in the text. Look at verse 5. These people are from the Pharisee party, but they are what? Believers. 
They're believers who belong to the Pharisee party. These aren't people who rejected Christ. Now, some of them obviously were, but we're told that these are believers. Now, many Pharisees get a bad rep in the Scriptures, and so they should. Jesus said they're whitewashed tombs. But can I humbly ask you this something this morning? Like, do you think you're more likely to get along with a modern-day Pharisee who has their life in order, obeys the commands of God, thinks like you, and acts a lot like you, versus someone wearing fig leaves whose life is extremely messy, you have nothing in common with, and has completely different ideologies and behavior than your own. Now we're getting personal, right? But this is what we're dealing with in the Council of Jerusalem. Ethan, Taylor, and Anna have taken the gospel out west. And we're getting pics and seeing updates, Grace Fellowship, of what they're doing. And we're thinking to ourselves, I'm not sure if they should be doing that. Like, I just don't know about this. Come on, guys. If your converts aren't doing this, then these people are not saved. See, the reason I give this kind of example is because these issues begin arising when the church is on mission. That's when these issues come up. And that's the context of the Jerusalem Council. When a church is on mission, we get back to the fundamentals of the gospel, which is receive the righteousness of Christ. The gospel is the good wood that makes the fire burn hot. But when people begin adding in their own thoughts and their own opinions, the fire begins to get smothered. And if we're not careful, put out. This is why we see so many churches not own mission. So God's mission is at stake in the Jerusalem Council. And it's also at stake in Grace Fellowship today. Now, you got to think about the pushback of the Pharisees. As they listen to Paul, Peter, and Barnabas, they're probably asking really good questions. Like this one that we mentioned earlier. How will believers in Christ be distinguishable if they don't come under the weight of God's law? Besides, you're making God's law out to be like some awful rules and regulations that are void of any benefit. And these are good pushbacks. Church, there is a large and growing sect of Christianity that divorces Christ from the law. This is extremely unhelpful and unwise and unbiblical. Psalm 19 is as true today as it was when it was written by the psalmist. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's sure, making the wise simple. It's right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. And so, church, I want to be super duper clear. The call this morning is not to abandon God's law. 
for that would be a call to abandon God. But it is a call to embrace the righteousness of Christ as preeminent. It's a call to rely on Jesus alone for your justification and your sanctification. Maybe you've come to faith in Christ, but you realize this morning that your Christian life consists of many, many do's and don'ts and very, very little, if any at all, intimacy and communion with the person of Jesus. You become so focused on making sure that the outside of the cup remains clean while forgetting that what matters most about a cup that you drink out of is the inside of it. You see, church, a gospel that calls you to faith in a person but then leads you to hope in religious principles and institutions is an inconsistent gospel. In fact, it's no gospel at all. Church, our hope is in Christ alone. (laughs) Not what we've done for him, but what he has done for us. This is the air we breathe. It's the same song we sing every Sunday, praise God. Christ the victor, Christ our substitute, Christ our righteousness. You see, the Jews were so worried that everything they held dear And everything they believed God valued, it seemed, was being torn down. But that's why James quotes the prophet Amos. This is Amos 9 that he quotes. And what that prophecy is saying is that God is actually rebuilding the ruins in a glorious way. Oh, and this is good. (laughs) This glorious way would be with Jesus as the cornerstone. It's upon him that this temple is built. And it will be a spiritual house. Built with living stones. To be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a better temple. That's a, that's, a, that's a whole better deal. That's a whole better package. Believer, you are saved by a person and you will be perfected by a person. Jesus Christ. It is him that you draw near to through his word and his spirit. This is so good. So the council of Jerusalem is wrapped up by James stating, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but rather we should write to them these things. Now, the big difference between what they wrote and what they were saying earlier in the council is what's required for salvation. Like these things they wrote to them are not required for salvation. Hence the phrase, if you do these things, you will do well. And this principle still holds true today. God's law is good. But we must remember, and this is important, we must remember what Paul will later write in Romans 14. That whatever does not originate and proceed from faith is what? It's sin. Make this clear. Whether you're helping an elderly lady across the street, feeding the hungry, even giving yourself up for martyrdom, 
if it doesn't come from a heart that cherishes, loves, and trusts Jesus, then it's wasted. I mean, that's scary. Scary to think that you can have the right theology, be a member of a healthy church, and still miss it. A wise man once said that your greatest challenge is not your discipline, not your devotion, not even your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. (laughs) That's your greatest challenge, believer, is believing the gospel. And I want to submit something to you today. You're even incapable of doing that. For faith is a gift from God, lest anyone should boast. So where does that leave us? It leaves us as people in desperate need of Jesus to help our unbelief. Wow. Sinner, let me tell you some good news. Jesus came for sinners. I hope when I said, sinner, let me tell you some good news that some of you did not turn your ears off. (laughs) If you're here today and you would confess, I need mercy, I need forgiveness, I need help, then Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Being yoked to Jesus is refreshing. You hear me? It's refreshing. It's life-giving. Why? Because he's the author of life. Many people talk, to, uh, talk about coming to Jesus as if it's something like joining the Marine Corps. Well, You've got to be a tough individual to join the Marines. And trust me, I'm personally thankful to God for tough individuals. But can I tell you that Jesus is not looking for spiritually tough individuals? Because there are none but him. You see, the issue in today's passage is clear. (laughs) Fig leaves won't save you, but neither will your skin coats. Your only hope is in the righteousness of Christ. Church, may we be careful to not yoke ourselves to principles, traditions, customs, and disciplines Because these yokes will leave us with shame, regret, disappointment, and a sense of spiritual defeat. Or worse, spiritual arrogance. Peter says we can't bear these yokes. But the good news is that we don't have to. Why? Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth bore them on our behalf. (laughs) He has now freed us to walk in the light just as he is in the light. You don't have to hide today or any other day. You don't have to cover yourselves. You don't have to try and measure up in Jesus. You are righteous and clean. And I hope that encourages you today. Let's pray.